Mari Frank, host of Privacy Piracy, which airs every Monday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. right here on KUCI, 88.9 FM in Irvine, and KUCI.org on the net. I'm also so pleased to present the weekly segment of Orange County Sheriff News and Safety Tips. And today we are welcoming Lieutenant Tin Finneran, who is the Bureau Commander for the Orange County Sheriff's Department Counterterrorism Bureau. He's been with the Orange County Sheriff's Department for 25 years. Tim, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you, Mari. Well, I understand you were in charge of hosting the 70th Annual Conference of the National Sheriff's Association right here in Orange County. That was pretty exciting. Why don't you tell us about that? Uh, That was very exciting for Sheriff Hutchins and the Orange County Sheriff's Department. Uh, The National Sheriff's Association is a a 70-year-old body of sheriffs uh, from all over the country, and their membership has about 20,000 participants. And this year, we had 3,500 people come to Orange County uh, to attend the National Sheriff's Association Conference, and uh, the Orange County Sheriff's Department uh, hosted. Uh, we uh, we worked with the NSA for the last 10 months, uh, putting the conference together, which was June 26th through the 30th, and uh, entailed uh, a lot of uh, manpower and a lot of hours and a lot of hard work by the uh, men and women of the Orange County Sheriff's Department. I bet you got to share a lot of great ideas. Oh, absolutely. Uh, it was... Uh, a very good conference in regards to uh, networking with sheriffs throughout the country, uh, learning how they operate their sheriff's departments, and then, of course, uh, you know they were interested in how we run our department. You know, we consider ourselves uh, uh, very uh, futuristic and and always moving ahead. So a lot of them were very uh, interested in in how we did business and how how the sheriff uh, runs her department. And I know you wear a lot of hats. Why don't you tell us about your wonderful role as commander for the counterterrorism division? What do you do and what do your colleagues on, in that division do, in that bureau do? Uh, well, and within the counterterrorism bureau, we have uh, the Homeland Security Grant Unit. And uh, that unit uh, manages about $20 million in grants, uh, which come into the county and then are dis- distributed uh, to the operational area. And by that, I mean uh, uh, all the cities, all the county agencies, uh, different uh, entities throughout the county. And uh, we we uh, make sure that all the regulations and laws are followed. And uh, we go ahead and we help uh, uh, agencies uh, fund equipment and other types of purchases uh, in the fight against uh, terrorism. Well, you're doing a terrific job. We're going to have you back next week to tell us even more. Thank you so much, Tim. Well, thank you, Mari. I appreciate the time. Thank you. Right. We'll have you back. Bye. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web.
Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, From Victim to Victor, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hour, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacypiracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today? Well, our show is very interesting. It's about a couple of studies. One is called the National Survey on Identity and Privacy in Social Media, which is huge. The other study we're going to be talking about is Web 2.0 Security in the Workplace. And, of course, who are we interviewing? My absolute favorite guest that we have to have him on probably twice a year because he does such incredibly important studies in the privacy area. We're going to be speaking with Dr. Larry Poneman, who is just wonderful. Let me, If you haven't heard him speak to us before, let me tell you about his background Dr. Larry Poneman is a pioneer in the development of privacy audits, privacy risk management, and ethical information management. He is the chairman and founder of the Poneman Institute, and based on his vast experience in the field of corporate governance, privacy compliance, data protection, and business ethics, he consults with leading multinational organizations on global privacy management programs. He was appointed to the Advisory Committee for, for Privacy for the United States Federal Trade Commission and to two California state tax task forces on privacy and data security laws. He was also appointed by the governor of Arizona to serve as a public member of the State Board of Optometry. And he has chaired faculty positions at Babson College and SUNY Binghamton. And he's published dozens of articles and five learned books. And not only that, not only being such a brilliant guy and being such a wonderful person as he is, he's also a frequent media commentator on privacy and other business ethics topics. And he's been interviewed by CNN, Fox News, CBS, CNBC, MSNBC, and many, many more, including the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Washington Post, USA Today, Financial Times, on and on and on and on. And his research studies, which we're going to talk about a couple of them today, and we've talked about many of them before, are all very well respected and have a profound impact on the manner in which corporations are, thank goodness, changing their approach to important privacy issues. There are so many more studies that he's done. You probably read about them in the newspaper, heard about them, even with Rush Lumba. And you can learn more about all the great work that the Poneman Institute is doing at Poneman.org. Thank you so much, Larry, for joining us all the way from beautiful Traverse City. Hey, Mari, what a what a wonderful <laughs> introduction. Who's that masked man? Is it really me? But thank you for such a... Such a wonderful introduction, and I'm so happy to be on your show again. Oh, well, you are such a great mentor for so many of us in the privacy arena, and we love you to death here. Oh, and ditto. I'm oh. love. You're, oh. you're, you're the best. So let's talk about this National Survey on Identity and Privacy in Social Media. That's, you know, I get a lot of calls from people who are either cyberbullied or they've become victims of identity theft, they think, through the social media. There's a lot of scary things going on. 
So you recently did a study on identity and privacy in social media. Mm-hmm. So what was the objective and who was your sample? And tell us about the methods. Well, this particular piece of research, we, we really wanted to understand whether people who are using social media, social networking, uh, you know, like a Facebook or MySpace, uh, social media tools like Twitter and, and many others, whether they're sensitive to some of the privacy issues and whether that, that concern about privacy is affecting their use of these tools and their behavior generally. Um, so this particular piece, which was uh, sponsored by Experian, actually Protect My ID, an Experian company, really attempted to try to uncover the privacy and data protection concerns that consumers have. Um, in this study, we did actually something very interesting. There's a whole bunch of interesting features to the study, but probably one of the most interesting features is we had two samples, and we compared one group of consumers who basically are like you and me, average consumers, who may have concerns about privacy, and a group of folks who, in fact, were known to be identity theft victims who should have a lot of concerns about their privacy. And we actually compared these two groups based on different questions. Wow. So what are the significant differences in social media behaviors between age groups? Well, firstly, we found that age does make a difference. Um, We looked at two groups, millennials and uh, boomers. Um, You know, I'm in the boomer side, way up there on the boomer side, actually. And we found that people in general have concerns about privacy and data protection when they use social media applications. But boomers... Um, folks who are older, folks folks who are, say, 55 years of age and beyond, are basically more concerned about their privacy than millennials. And there's this belief that people who are younger really don't care as much about their privacy. And I'm not sure that's true, but they view their privacy differently. And they believe that anonymity, for example, is a good surrogate to their privacy. People who are older are a little bit suspicious about so-called anonymity. And so to them, anonymity is not a surrogate for privacy. And they are, in fact, more concerned as a result, even if there are all these commitments that their personally identifiable information is not revealed. You know, Larry, I've been interviewing teenagers ever since you interviewed Sean. Oh, that's right. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Bubba Lawler's son. Yes. Yeah. And so I interviewed him on the airplane leaving from this privacy conference that you held. And what was, I interviewed him after you interviewed him, and we put it, we recorded it. Great. And then I also interviewed four other teens, because I thought this would be interesting to see what they think about privacy and what their concerns are in using the social networking. And one of the things that I've found so far, I've interviewed, I think, four, and I have one more to interview, um, was that they have when I ask them about the dangers, the only dangers that they think about are being um, are, are someone who would find out where they are and come and kidnap them, right. or they would find them and meet them and maybe try and you know hurt them in some way. Mm-hmm. And and they told me what they're learning in the schools is basically that. When I ask them like, what are you being taught about? protecting yourself online. It's all about not talking to strangers, not giving out your find, uh, your personal information so they couldn't find you. But they're not really talking about some of the other kinds of privacy issues. Yes, it's been real. You, I'll have to send it to you when, when I'm done with it. It's very interesting because these kids are the age of anywhere from like 13 to 17. 
And uh, so it's it, it just, and I have them. I have one from Northern California, one from Southern California, one from Iowa, one from Boston, and one from Chicago. So I tried to get kids, and males and females, I tried to get kids that were kind of across the country to just kind of see what they say. But they, they don't seem to understand the ramifications of some of these other privacy issues. Very interesting. And in fact, one of the um, one of the findings that's actually not published in the paper, but it was more part of our debriefing process. When we asked people, um, do you know the other members of your social community? So for example, you're, you have friends and family, and these are the people who have access to your private um, wall or your, or your homepage. Um, and you obviously want to exclude people who don't necessarily have the right to be there and to see all of this personal information. So you ask people, do you control it? And they say, oh, absolutely. You know, I only <laughs> limit access to my very closest best friends right. and my, my close family members. And then you ask the question, well, so how many people, how many friends do you have? And they say 500. <laughs> <laughs> I got the so same you, answer. How does that yeah. happen? How can you know that uh, there's not at least one person out there who may <laughs> not be your closest friend and may in fact take your information and share it broadly. I know. Amazing. <laughs> amazing. So talking about identity theft victims, though, how did the identity theft victims rank the importance of the protection of their personal data when they're using social media? You know, that's a great question. And it was interesting. We really didn't find the huge differences that we anticipated between these groups. You know, our belief, a priori, you know, before doing this research, was that if you're an identity theft victim, that will be life-changing, and it's going to change how you use social networking tools and other tools that have a privacy uh, potential uh, or privacy issues. Uh, but we really didn't see big differences between these two groups. I mean, we saw small, modest differences in some respects. Uh, people who have experienced identity theft are more likely to implement better controls better procedures, um, use privacy, higher privacy settings. But it was very, very small. These were not as significant as you would expect. Right. So they somehow don't see their vulnerability as much maybe on the social networking sites if they are using some of the privacy settings. They're, they're probably maybe trusting it more. Right. I think the thing is they say, well, look, it's a social network. Um, I'm more concerned about my you know, something personal, a fact that I want to share with a small group somehow leaks out and it's going to be used against me. Maybe I'll become a victim of cyberbullying as a result of that. But they're not seeing the link to identity theft. They don't necessarily think that the information they have on their wall or their homepage can, in fact, be accessed by a bad guy who's trying to assume your identity. And so I think that connection is not clear to people, even those people who are identity theft victims. Right. They're not seeing themselves sharing the financial information like their credit card information or their social security number. Right. So they, so they kind of see themselves as safe. And, and that's been the experience, at least um, when I talk to people about this, that's the same kind of idea that they're just thinking, well, if I, if I do use these privacy settings, I am safe. So, yeah. yeah. What kinds of information are people sharing then on the social media sites? What did you learn from the study? Well, we, we found that people share a lot. I mean, things that uh, are pretty clear from a, from a social networking site would be someone's gender, maybe their email address, their name, sometimes names of friends, their date of birth, hobbies and interest areas, even photos and videos are very common now. Um, things that are usually shared are things 
that someone chooses to share because somehow it's going to connect them with other people who, you know, who may be in their age group or may share a common set of interests. Things that aren't shared usually are things like someone's credit card or, as you mentioned, social security number, driver's license number. There's no reason to include that typically uh, in social media. But, I, but we've actually observed that is does happen on occasion. And also, you know, there's been studies to show that if you share your birth date and where you're born, there is a way to figure out your social security <laughs> number. That's so, right. So, you know, that's kind of dangerous and people don't recognize that either. So um, in, in terms of what they're, they're sharing, one of the things that, that I read today in the newspaper, which I thought was interesting, was, you know, all these on Facebook, you can share this, this um, application that'll say exactly where you are. You have to, you like, look at your phone and mm-hmm. this new thing. And um, MTV is actually encouraging that. If you go to get uh, tested for HIV and you send this over to MTV and show them that you're... <laughs> that you're there, that they're going to give you this badge of courage. And so there's what's really amazing to me is that there's all this um, encouragement to let people know where you are, and people are not thinking about that if they if they know where you are or where you frequent, that you could be found there as well. It, it is really amazing how insensitive, you know, there's, you would think there would be a higher level of sensitivity about your location. Because if you think about the crown jewel of privacy, is like not only who you are as a human being, but where you are and what you're doing. And so location hasn't actually, we expected it to become one of the, the mega privacy issues, but it really hasn't risen as yet. It has still something that people are, you know, a little concerned about it, but certainly it's not uh, the level of concern that we would expect. Um, and it's, I think that type of technology is just so prevalent. It's in our iPhone. It's GPS tracking and a chip. It could be used for good, obviously, you know, knowing where your children are. In my case, knowing where my dogs are. I mean, there's, a, there's, there's an upside to it, but right. the downside is, is just enormous. Yeah. And, and just if you can just imagine, I, I had this uh, last year, we were at an event in Laguna Beach, and there was this young person that was the daughter of one of my friends was with us. And they were from out of town. And during the this um, beautiful pageant of the Masters, she got a text ma- message from somebody that she met on Facebook. And they said, oh, where are you? And she said, oh, I'm at the pageant of the Masters. And this guy said, I am too. Let's meet. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and, and, you know, she told this to me. And she, her mother and I both freaked out, you know, <laughs> about this whole thing. <laughs> She's like 15 years old. And we were just no. terrified. <laughs> Just terrified. So, you know, people are saying, oh, I'm at, you know, I'm over here. And a lot of young people are saying, oh, how fun, you know, let's meet at the corner deli or let's meet at Starbucks or whatever. And they're not realizing that other people can maybe see this and join them as well. And I just I think it's they're they're thinking how cool it is to connect without thinking of the ramifications. Absolutely. I mean, it's the stalker's dream to be able to have access to this information say, hey, you know, you're in the shopping mall, and I'm also in the shopping mall. Yes. Um, and I think we're going to start to see some problems. You know, I think what normally happens, it's a really cool thing. It's, you know, where your friends are. You, you could use it to meet. Um, but at the same time, there will be bad guys who figure out ways of abusing the system. And unfortunately, bad things will happen, and then suddenly there will be social concern yes. about this issue. Yeah, yeah. 
We are speaking with a wonderful privacy expert, a dear friend, Dr. Larry Poneman, who is a pioneer in the development of privacy audits, privacy risk management, and ethical business standards and ethical management in the whole corporate arena. He is the chairman and founder of the Poneman Institute, and he is well-known. He's, he's seen all the time on TV, um, heard on the radio. We're so thrilled to have him here. He's been in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, everything you can think about. And you can learn more about the great work that they do and the wonderful studies that are really intricate and actually have an, a great impact on our society at Poneman.org. That's spelled P-O-N-E-M-O-N.org. And you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank, the host of Privacy Piracy. So let's go back and talk about what kinds of steps people are using to protect their privacy and security when they're using social media. Well, they're doing a whole bunch of things, Mari. It seems like um, they rely on the privacy functionality of the um, social media application So if it exists, they might actually adjust their privacy settings from low to medium or medium to high. Um, They are using social networks that are recommended to them by friends, as if somehow that's a really great security (laughs) procedure. If your friends use it, it's probably good enough for you. Um, They're doing doing the the bare minimum um, to secure their their home page or their wall. but they basically think that if it's a reputable product, if it's something that they've heard about, it must have good controls, and so they're less concerned about the, the privacy implications. And we know, you know, some of the best uh, and well, most well-known products like Facebook have had some very serious privacy issues. But uh, for whatever reason, this isn't entering into the chemistry. People are still focusing on if it's used by my friends, if the, if there's a large enough audience. It must be legitimate, and I could use it without worrying too much about my privacy. Yeah, I think it's a brand. It's, it's just like, issue. you know, you buy Maytag or something. You know what I mean? It's a brand issue. If everybody's doing it, it must be right. So basically, in, in terms of how they feel about the protection by their social media host is, is what? That they think it's okay? or Well, I think they feel that there are privacy-related issues, but it's not, obviously it's not overwhelming because they're using the tool. They're using the technology. Um, they're not actually taking an aggressive stand on their privacy settings. Um, they're not looking at potential issues like, you know, not providing as much information as they may want to provide. They're not doing that self-censorship that we would expect people with a level of privacy concern to have. So it's it's almost like people know it's out there and they hear about these stories, but they don't think it's going to affect them in a serious way. And if it does, the consequence is more like their personal information leaking out and somehow it becomes a a fact that you didn't want to reveal to everyone is now in the public domain. They're less concerned about things like stalking or certainly identity theft. They don't see that as being a likely consequence of a privacy issue in social media. Right. I I noticed one of the questions you asked the respondents was, what would you do if you learned that your favorite social media providers did not adequately, adequately protect your privacy or security? So what, what were the responses in that area? Well, you know, as you probably saw in the study, we found that the number one most likely response was nothing at all. <laughs> yeah. I would do nothing. In other words, if you found out there was a privacy issue, but you still liked the social networking site, it was your favorite site, you would do nothing. 
Um, the second most likely answer, you would continue using the social media, but post less confidential information. And the third most likely response, you would stop using it completely. That was a very small percentage. I think it was less than 20% of the, of the sample. And then finally, um, stop using the social media and tell your friends about the risk. Um, very, very few people said they would do that. So it seems like even if there are privacy issues, if you like it, if you like using the tool, you'll continue to use it. Very depressing finding, I think. Well, you know what? I think they figure that the benefit of the friendships and the social interaction outweighs any privacy issue. Because oh, they, absolutely. You know, I, I mean, they, that's, there, there's yeah. real value to using social networks right. and social media generally. I mean, we saw that in, for example, uh, the way news got out of Iran, right, when they had turmoil around their election. It was using Twitter. Right. Um, so we see, you know, globally, this is a phenomenal tool to bring people together and people could work in communities. But on the other hand, there is a risk, and that people need to understand that risk level. And also, when they're providing information, there may be some pieces of data that even though there's a benefit to having it on the wall, you may think, need to think twice about whether you want the world to know about that information. Exactly. And I think that basically the younger generation that uses this, it is such a way of connecting for them that they don't even want to think about anything that's bad except maybe some bad stalkers that could hurt them. And I, I think part of it is that these schools are not getting any deeper into the levels of privacy at all. I, you yeah. know, In fact, the kids that I talked to had no idea about identity theft, how that might even happen on a social networking site. So what, when you ask the question about the Internet activities um, that they consider most risky for identity theft, what, what did they say? Well, they were thinking of, you know, other more typical general online activities. Number one was banking. You know, if you're doing online banking and you're using some of the advanced features, you know, that's going to be definitely the way to, you know, experience identity theft. And they basically felt that they would have a heightened level of concern uh, doing something like that or uh, maybe online health information, things that were viewed as more mainstream Internet activity. Right, not so insidious. Social networking yeah. is kind of the bottom of the list. They basically saw that as a very, very low probability event uh, that would ultimately lead to their identity being stolen. Right, because those other ways that it can happen with hackers that get into your website, I mean, right. into your social, that's kind of insidious. So they only saw the, the overt, not the covert ways. Right. I think the, the identity thieves are pretty smart, yeah. and they, they're probably not looking at one source to collecting information. Probably they're looking at building a dossier, you know, and if they can go into someone's social networking site and get all of this personal information and then, lo and behold, get that social security num number from another source, then that's a crown jewel record. That's something that would actually sell for a substantial amount of money because it could lead to better crime, I suppose. Right. Right. And, and, you know, just having all that information, if somebody wants to get revenge and use identity theft to get revenge, mm -hmm. it's pretty easy to make up if somebody doesn't have a Gmail account or a Hotmail account or some other account, they can create an email with Larry Poneman's name and try and discredit Larry Poneman or Mari Frank. And I've seen it. <laughs> yeah, well, you, you, I've seen it as well. And I think some of the some of the folks who said that they experienced privacy-related issues felt that it was someone pretending to be them right. in the social network. Like some, some, somehow they get your Gmail account or some, some private credential 
that identifies you, and so they become you. And then it's hard to know what's the truth about this individual. Um, we heard of one one story where a person was um, denied employment. Uh, she graduated from a, a, a major university, uh, and part of the screening process was a, re- a review of her uh, social networking sites uh, by the the HR folks and their uh, respective uh, employer, and they found issues that were damaging to her credibility, and it was actually posted by a so-called friend. Um, <laughs> exactly. So these things, these things do happen where you think you have control over your information, but you really don't. Exactly. Now, I noticed that um, you found that only 10% of respondents perceived a threat of identity theft when using social networking. Right. Yeah. So what was that disconnect? I mean, it can even be for non-financial or financial, but are they even thinking about the non-financial revenge type stuff? I mean, what are they thinking about that? Well, I think that it's not a top-of-mind issue. They they think that, well, you mentioned stalking, that someone could find out where you're located. So it's a location tracking tool um, as part of the social media application. Uh, or that somehow a something in your private domain, in you know, in your private wall, your private website is going to leak out. And so like a future employer or, you know, someone who's out there who really shouldn't have access to this, this information, they kind of learn about your secret. Um, or something embarrassing, an embarrassing fact. Uh, that was viewed as much more likely to occur. But your identity being stolen by a proverbial bad guy, that wasn't really part of the equation for most people. I think it was, it was about 10% on average that people said it was something that they at least thought about, but most people weren't even thinking about identity theft, which basically sets, unfortunately, a, a, a very uh, dangerous situation uh, for people who are using uh, social media. If they're not concerned about it, they're probably posting information that could lead to huge risks down the line. Right. You know, one of the kids who I talked to was adorable. I mean, he was so <laughs> cute, but he told me when I asked him what social networking sites he used, one of the things he said he used was YouTube as a social networking site and putting up videos. And I said, well, what do you think might happen in the future? And, you know, he was, I think, ninth grade or eighth grade. And I said, well, you know, when you want to go to college, if any of the, you know, admissions people look at that, or you want to get a job for the summer or the future what do you think about that? He said, well, I think I'll have to take some of these down. <laughs> and, and, you know, and I, I didn't want to really get into it too much, but I thought once it's up there, will you really be able to destroy it? You know, yep. it's how many times will it be copied? And, and, you know, I just said, Oh, you know, he said, but I'm not worried about the cartoons I put up cause I'm not in any of those, you know, <laughs> well, but you know, it, it, it was amazing. It, it, it's yeah. kind of a, it is amazing. Um, I think Eric Schmidt, from Google said, um, basically, people will have to change their name when they enter the workforce because there would be so much damaging evidence uh, via this video and all of that other stuff that we post to our our social networking site that it's going to be impossible to get into your school of choice or to get a job. So, you know, it's like all of this damage control that we're going to have to deal with in the future. But we're starting to see that, Mari. There are, yeah. there are companies now providing reputation protection. Yes. You know, what, what are people saying about you on Google and suddenly or in, your, or in Facebook? And suddenly you're paying a service to basically manage your reputation. Exactly. That's amazing. I know I had the CEO as well as the um, as the general consul on for Reputation Defender and talking about, well, you can't really erase this stuff. You can only put new stuff on that will come up higher on the on the Google, you know, mm-hmm. 
so that it kind of buries that other stuff. But you can't really promise that you can get rid of it. And and that's a really kind of scary. And if you even if you change your name, like, you know, like they're talking about, um, I have people who call me and this is really scary, Larry, that they find out that their face is used. Um, there was one model oh. who called me who is a, not a she she models, you know, clothes that are uh, conservative clothes. And she found out that her head was put on the body of some hooker type person and was on a German, yes, was on a German website. And it, it came to her, you know, and it wasn't her. And so wow. this was a form of identity theft. And then I was learning from different people I spoke with that there were, they're really talking about being able to identify you by pictures. And so that even if you change your name, your picture will then be able, your digital picture will be able to be compared and they could find you by your picture. Now this this is almost like a science fiction movie, <laughs> like Minority Report. It is. But, but but think about it. Someone becomes you by stealing, by inserting their photograph. Yes. <laughs> and so that picture doesn't match your picture. Yeah. And facial scanning and everything else that's going to be out there will basically say, well, you aren't Mari Frank. You yeah. aren't Larry Poneman. Right. So there will be some other person. Yes. Yes, and that's what happened to this poor woman. It, oh, it was no. just amazing. Yeah, it was. It was. We dealt with it, but it was not an easy thing to deal with. Yeah. So you know, you you ask this question: Who's most responsible for protecting your privacy and security when you're using social media? Tell us about those responses. Well, it was kind of interesting. We looked at millennials and boomers, and we compared them on that characteristic, and we found that in general, the boomer, the older respondent, felt that the person, the individual user, was more responsible. I think 25% of the boomers have scored it this way, and only 9% of the millennials felt that the user was responsible. But the most common response was either the social media provider or government. Now, again, the government was an interesting choice. 40% of the millennials felt that government would ultimately be responsible for protecting you. Hmm. And it was only 29% of the boomers. So I think as people get older, they become less confident that the government's going to be able to protect their privacy rights. And in fact, it can't. <laughs> they can't. It's true. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, there's the perception versus the reality. But it does seem that there are differences between these two groups. But clearly, the social media provider is the likely choice. We see that you know there's an expectation that Facebook or uh, or whomever, whatever product that's out there that you're using is basically out there protecting you, or at least attempting to protect your privacy. Whether it's true or not true yeah. remains to be seen, but there's that expectation. Well, in a way, that's good that the expectation is there because then when, when it doesn't happen, there is a brouhaha, as there has been with Facebook, for example, right. is that you know when, when the users say, wait a minute, what is going on here? I mean, it does kind of hold them accountable, and it's almost easier than the government. Although then the government does its own, you know, it, it, you know, investigation to see what's going on. So sure, sure, and you know, when when it becomes a consumer issue, then it becomes a government issue. I think the FTC steps in, and other regulators start to look at this as a more serious problem. But it seems that the social media providers say this about a reputation. They they want the largest possible audience, and they don't want to necessarily have a big consumer problem. Um, you know, that could be unfortunately turn into a media nightmare for them. So they're motivated, I think they're motivated to make sure that they have at least some degree of protection. Yes. 
I think it's interesting that the boomers thought that the individual had the ability even to protect their privacy. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of wishful thinking because there's it so is. much beyond our control. And how could the boomers even think that they could do it, maybe except to just not engage in it? Yeah, either not to engage or to really provide limits in terms of the information you post to your, your private site. Um, mm. I think that probably would be the only recourse available to someone who's knowledgeable. But I do agree. I think it's naive of users to some, or for us to think that we have ultimate control over that information. I think it's once it's out and it's in the hands of the social networking provider, it's really up to the social networking provider to take appropriate steps. We are speaking with a wonderful privacy expert, a pioneer in the development of privacy audits, privacy risk management, and ethical information management. We are speaking with none other than one of my very, very favorite, actually my favorite guest, Dr. Larry Poneman, who's the chairman and founder of the Poneman Institute. You can see all the wonderful work that they've done, and you've probably even heard about him on TV, the radio, and in lots of newspapers, the, the New York Times, I've seen it in the Orange County Register, the L.A. Times. And you can go to Poneman.org and see more about Dr. Larry Poneman's great work. So, Larry, let's talk about some tips that you have for social media users. Mm -hmm. You know, how, how can they safeguard their identities online? Well, I think that there's the basic stuff that we can all do. First, I, I do think it is important to deal with social networking or social media tools that are reputable. Um, there are many tools that are available, and if you're a parent, for example, you want to make sure that you're using the tools that are at least known to take privacy seriously, read policies, look at the track record, you know, do a Google search and find out if there have been any privacy-related problems before you allow your children, for example, to use these tools, even if they're fashionable and they're used by lots of people. I think you want to be very cautious in posting certain types of information. Um, things that you may want to post might be, for example, name might, might be acceptable and there may be other facts about yourself you want to share, but don't go too far. Um, the story that you mentioned about you know, a video and then ultimately taking it down, once it's out there, it's going to be used and copied, and you, there's no guarantee that you'll ever be able to seize control over a video, and that's true also of a digital photograph. So you need to be careful when you start posting this kind of information. But in general, it's just, you know, buyer beware. Um, just take appropriate steps. Um, make sure that you're, you're using the appropriate privacy settings based on your preferences. Um, if there's a concern or a problem, um, first line of attack is contact the social media provider. One of the things that we look for in general, and this is across the Internet, if, this, if an organization is responsible, or it tells you that they're responsible for protecting your privacy, test it out. If there's an 800 number to call or an email to, you know, to send a request or, um, for additional information, try it out. If they don't respond to you in a short period of time, like usually within a day, um, maybe they're not doing what they, they say they're going to do. So if they take privacy seriously and you put the word privacy in your communication, if they don't respond to you quickly, it's probably a sign that, you know, maybe it's, it's talk and it's not walk. They're not actually going to uh, take appropriate steps. So these are just common sense steps to take. But it is up to the user to some extent to make the right choice. And if you have any doubt at all, just run. Don't actually use um, a social networking tool where you are thinking maybe this is uh, not privacy-friendly. 
Right. And here we are sitting on the campus at the University of California where everybody here uses social networking, even the professors. And, of course, people driving by, you know, also want to use social networking for their businesses. So I've even gotten involved. I do a little Twitter thing I had to do for my new book. They wanted me to do a, a Twitter chat, so I had to learn to do that. And then, of course, I had to do Facebook for, for you know, and I'm, I'm you're kind of forced into it, though, Larry. Well, if you're going to use these tools, and it's part of what we do, we're out, uh, you know, you and, and, and our organization, we're communicators. We're out there trying to get the message out. And I, as I mentioned that uh, earlier, these tools are fen- phenomenal. They have they provide a great social value. They provide a great opportunity for people to communicate and create communities around the world. So there's a real positive. But if you're concerned about privacy, you need to use your common sense. You know, don't provide information. That, think about the information that goes to your private site and assume if that information leaks out and is ultimately in the hands of a future employer or a, a future spouse or whatever, but I want them to know that about me. If, if, if the answer is I'm not sure or no, then that's a clear indication you're providing too much. Larry, let's skip and go over to the workplace because sure. a lot of people here are, are either business owners or they work, even the students work, and the workplace is really all-encompassing. Everybody gets involved in the workplace in one way or another. Mm-hmm. And you did this great study Web 2.0 security in the workplace. Um, first of all, how do you define Web 2.0? Well, when we think of Web 2.0, it's using it's kind of the next stage of the internet. It actually allows us to use internet tools to communicate. And we think of Web 2.0 as somehow being associated or aligned with internet communities. So therefore, there's a natural link to to social media again and social networking tools. But it's more than that. It's really using the um, the internet not as a one-way interaction, but definitely a two- or an n-dimensional communication. So you are communicating with a whole bunch of people, and they're share- and, the- and those people ultimately become a place where you share values, um, ideas. Um, you know, it just becomes like a, a, a working community. So it's Web 2.0 tools would include most social networking tools and certainly social media tools like, like a Twitter and location tools as well, like a TripIt. Right. And I know a lot of companies are setting up their own social networking within the company as well. Sure. Absolutely. I mean, the employer wants to create a friendly environment for their employees. And so organizations are setting up and very effectively setting up social networks that are used internally. And it's, it's a great tool. Um, for example, in one company that we studied, um, they created a social network that allowed people to share good ideas. And so, for example, if you're a global pharmaceutical organization and you have a research and development function in New Jersey, and they're doing this great research, but also there's a team in Switzerland doing similar research, the social network allowed people who didn't even know each other to kind of combine their resources and probably accomplish more. So social networking in organizations is just natural. It makes, it makes good business sense to have it. Yeah, and it creates such creativity. You know, I, I'm on all these listservs, and I find myself reading some of this stuff, and it gives me great ideas, or I can put out a question myself, and which I, I imagine happens within corporations, but sure. even in these listservs that I'm on, I can ask a question about something and get 10 different answers to my ideas or, or my, my query, and it just really 
you know, exponentially uh, increases the creativity. So I can oh, see, yeah. yeah, I can see how great that would be. And you know, Mari, we're using social networking tools um, for research because, it, as you said, getting a, a, an answer to your question, we have short surveys, opinion polls, and it goes out to different people in a community, maybe within an organization or across multiple organizations. And it's so efficient to be able to get that response. It may not be scientific as yet, but it's certainly a great way to get information. Right. What were the objectives of this Web 2.0 security in the workplace? What, you know, what were this the particular study looked at the risk of Web 2.0. The idea is that you know we love Web 2.0 and we love social networking, as we discussed in our last segment. But here we wanted to understand whether organizations were cognizant of the security risk that Web 2.0 applications potentially create. Let me give you an example, um, and this is you know, I'll have to disguise the name of the the product, but a well-known social networking tool has widgets that are downloadable by the um, by the user. These pieces of software will download as an application on a maybe a smartphone, an iPhone, um, or some other device. Could be a laptop computer. And these widgets are supposed to be tested for security, but sometimes they're not fully or completely secure. And sometimes, if you're a bad guy and you want to have sinister code or you know, drop in a botnet or two, you can use these applications to attack networks and, and enterprise systems. And, of course, that happens, and it happens all the time. So if an organization allows the end user to have a device that has this, this unfortunately, sinister code in the form of a widget, an illegal widget, that could actually lead to all sorts of security problems down the line. And it basically becomes another endpoint that's insecure. We see a lot of these problems that are emerging, and these problems aren't ones and twos, but they're thousands because mm-hmm. everyone's using a common or popular tool and a popular widget, and lots of people are trying to connect to their systems to get their email or their text messages in the workplace. So they're not actually trying to use these devices in an illegal capacity, but the end result of mobility plus um, Web 2.0 access creates a perfect storm for a security nightmare. Right. And, and so who were the respondents in this study? Well, these are people who are end users in organizations. So these are people in the workplace, like you and me, who use Web 2.0 and other, uh, other types of applications as a normal part of their life. Um, and they're using these tools sometimes legitimately to increase their productivity. It could be scheduling tools. It could be uh, emailing tools, texting tools, even location tracking tools in the workplace. So some of it is very legitimate, and sometimes it's just taking the same tools you use in your personal life and downloading it to devices that are assigned uh, to you by your employer, um, like Facebook, MySpace, Twitter, and so forth. So what about the IT people and the security practitioners? What do they think about this threat of, of Web 2.0 in the workplace? Well, these the, the, it, it was kind of interesting because we asked this question to folks not only in the United States, but we also had respondents in the U.K., in Australia, in France, and in Japan. So we looked at five countries. And what we found is that there's a, there's a lot of differences across, um, across countries on the question about you know, whether this is a big security concern. In general, in the U.S. and also in Japan, there's a perception and a belief that the Web 2.0, if unchecked, can lead to huge security risks for their organizations. 
but that would, that perception was certainly not shared by respondents in the in England and Australia and France. It seems to be on a lower priority level. Seems like other issues are potentially causing greater security risk. And while they acknowledged that Web 2.0 security is a problem, it wasn't say at, in the top ten list. It might have been in the top fifty list. Interesting. Yeah. Now, who should be held responsible for ensuring the safe use of the internet when they're in the workplace? Well, this is a tough issue. Because, you know, in the olden days, if it was a, an IT thing, right, like a, a new system, you had the uh, someone in the IT organization, maybe IT security, with the responsibility for setting up policies and procedures. And if it was too risky, someone with authority would say, no, we're not going to do it. But in the Web 2.0 world, in the mo- mobile uh, universe that we operate in, the decision to use or not use an application is made by the end user. And so many of the risks are really not uh, checked by the IT or the IT security department. In fact, they just learn about it after the fact. When they do an investigation and they say, gee, how did this botnet or this data stealing malware enter our system? They find, hey, it came from Larry Poneman's iPhone. (laughs) How did that happen? And so it's unfortunate that it's not it's not preventative. They're not actually looking at the devices and the um, types of risk in advance of it infiltrating uh, the company. So the perception of the IT professionals, what was that? Did they How how safely did they think the employees were using this? Well, in general, they, they believe that it's a big problem. And in the U.S., they felt that end users were, for the most part, not being mindful, you know, not taking the necessary steps, not asking questions whether this particular application uh, or this device was, in fact, legal. Um, and people like to do things. People are connected to their iPhone or their smartphone or their Android, whatever it is, and we want to figure out a way of using that device and connecting to all parts of our lives. So it's not that the end users are bad and, and doing awful things deliberately, but there's a consequence by not we're not being mindful of these security risks in advance. And so it seems like it's, a, unfortunately, a, an issue that is not necessarily... Um, managed effectively by by many companies. So shouldn't the privacy office or the IT department be helping to produce some kind of policies with regard to this? Well, that's a good question. We do see policies that, I mean, this is relatively new stuff. Um, We're seeing organizations that are acknowledging the security risk. They're trying to educate and train their end users about the security risk. They're trying to identify um, software applications that are, in fact, particularly risky. There are some that are more risky than others, and they're starting to hone in on the ones that are really risky. They're using whitelisting technologies as part of endpoint security to identify the applications that are, in fact, okay. And so we're starting to see organizations doing more than they have in the past, but ultimately it's it's going to be the responsibility of the end user. Uh, You know, people like convenience, and they they want to use their smartphone or their, their laptop computer, and they love using social networking tools. To take it away from a person is probably silly because there are real advantages to using these tools in the workplace. But we have to find that happy medium. How do we use these tools in ways that don't create a security minefield for the for their company? So we have a lot of companies here in Orange County that drive by and can listen to this, and we have lots of companies that, that hear this, and even the university itself. What specifically do you suggest that people put into policies or do training? I mean, how, how should... We deal with this issue. It sounds like it's a real security risk. It, it, it really is. I, I think what the 
organizations that are, you know, maybe it's the top 10%, what they're starting to do right is they're making this issue salient to their employees. They're using um, vignettes, uh, little case studies, real-life case histories that led to problems, and trying to demonstrate or or educate their their employees, the end users, on the potential risk, um, and then trying to educate them on ways to mitigate or reduce that risk by, you know, thinking twice before they download a software application or at least talking to their maybe their boss, their first-line supervisor, to determine whether it's okay. So we're starting to see more organizations going out and trying to get their employees a um, little bit, maybe it's not educated, that's probably not the right term, but really a level of awareness that it's not, you know, hey, I'm going to do something that's really cool. I'm going to download an application that I use in my personal life and I'm going to bring it to my, you know, to my employer. Um, people are, are at least starting to do that basic blocking and tackling on the, in the awareness front. Uh, in terms of policies and procedures, this is a little bit more difficult because you don't want to discourage, you know, you, don't, you want people to use tools because it creates innovation, it creates more opportunities in the workplace. So you don't want to stymie that, so all the positive stuff. But you want to do things in ways um, that are ultimately at a certain level of security. So policies and procedures are being implemented that um, basically talk about different types of technologies that are acceptable. Some organizations are putting a list together of the applications that they view as, as acceptable applications and then a list of do never, never use these applications right. uh, in the workplace because they're not checked out or they're too risky. And so these policies and procedures uh, are usually owned by the IT security department but we're also seeing folks in the corporate privacy or the legal department being involved in the creation of these policies. More companies are doing it. Uh, we're starting to see, you know, maybe 10 or 20 percent of companies that already have such a policy in place among Fortune 500 companies. And I, I imagine that over the next couple of years, we'll see most Fortune 500 sized companies with very explicit policies like the do's and don'ts, things that you can do and things that you really can't do. Right. And and maybe even have somebody, a go-to person, say, gee, I want to bring this great application. This is what it does. Mm-hmm. Maybe we should at least consider it for, um, you know, look at the application and see how safe it really is and do some research before we bring it on. Because, uh, it, you, you know, there's going to be more and more apps out there. It's just Absolutely. It's and, you know, there are technologies yeah. that are very helpful. Um, yeah. There are technologies that look at uh, threats and uh, threat vectors and attack vectors based on different devices. So if you start to see in the early stage a pattern developing from a certain type of device or a certain application, you can shut it down pretty quickly. And there are some companies, very few companies, that have actually mastered this, but I've seen a few companies starting to implement these technologies that say, well, well that, that, that iPhone is too risky or... You know, that Android device is too risky, so we're going to implement these kinds of solutions. So it's a little bit more proactive in identifying the risk. It means that the risk is, or the problem has already occurred, but it hasn't become a forest fire. It's maybe one tree that's, that's burning. Well, I'll tell you, there is just so much happening in this whole world of technology, privacy, and thank goodness we have you because oh, you. because of all the great work that you're doing. And it's, you know, at times it's overwhelming, but at least when we can look at it and see how people are thinking and perceiving, it can help us to create solutions. So you are wonderful, and we appreciate you so much, Larry. Thank you for coming back on. 
Thank you, Mari. I love being on your show anytime, and you are the best. And we will send people to Poneman.org, and they can learn all about the great studies. And if you have a company that wants to do a study, Larry is the go-to person because he can create a study to help you learn much more about what needs to be done to help not only your company but many other companies in the field of responsible information management. So we will have you back again very soon, Larry, and thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Mari. It's a pleasure. Okay, we'll talk to you soon. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank, the host of Privacy Piracy. Join us every Monday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. right here on KUCI. Also, visit our website at KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy, where you can see our upcoming guests. You can download podcasts. You can listen to archived interviews. You can see pictures of our upcoming guests. And most of all, we'd love to hear from you. So please send us an email there as well, and we will try and accommodate you to answer your questions about privacy in the information age. Thank you, and hope you'll join us next week. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. Hi, I'm Mari Frank, host of Privacy Piracy, which airs every Monday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. right here on KUCI, 88.9 FM in Irvine, and KUCI.org on the net. I'm also so pleased to present the weekly segment of Orange County Sheriff News and Safety Tips. And today we are welcoming Lieutenant Tin. Vineran, who is the Bureau Commander for the Orange County Sheriff's Department Counterterrorism Bureau. He's been with the Orange County Sheriff's Department for 25 years. Tim, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you, Mari. Well, I understand you were in charge of hosting the 70th Annual Conference of the National Sheriff's Association right here in Orange County. That was pretty exciting. Why don't you tell us about that? Uh, that was very exciting for Sheriff Hutchins and the Orange County Sheriff's Department. Uh, the National Sheriff's Association is a, a 70-year-old uh, a body of sheriffs uh, from all over the country, and their membership has about 20,000 uh, participants. And this year, we had 3,500 people come to Orange County uh, to attend the National Sheriff's Association conference, and uh, the Orange County Sheriff's Department uh, hosted. Uh, we uh, we worked with the NSA for the last 10 months, uh, putting the conference together, which was June 26th through the 30th, and uh, entailed uh, a lot of uh, manpower and a lot of hours and a lot of hard work by the uh, men and women of the Orange County Sheriff's Department. I bet you got to share a lot of great ideas. Oh, absolutely. Uh, it was uh, a very good conference in regards to uh, networking with sheriffs throughout the country, uh, learning how they operate their sheriff's departments, and then, of course, uh, you know, they were interested in how we run our department. You know, we consider ourselves uh, a very uh, futuristic and, and always moving ahead, so a lot of them were very uh, interested in, in how we did business and how, how the sheriff uh, runs her department. And I know you wear a lot of hats. Why don't you tell us about your wonderful role as commander for the counterterrorism division? What do you do and what do your colleagues on, in that division do, in that bureau do? Uh, well, and within the counterterrorism bureau, we have uh, the Homeland Security Grant Unit. And uh, that unit uh, manages about $20 million in grants, uh, which come into the county. 
and then are dis distributed uh, to the operational area. And by that, I mean uh, uh, all the cities, all the county agencies, uh, different uh, entities throughout the county, and uh, we we uh, make sure that all the regulations and laws are followed, and uh, we go ahead and we help uh, uh, agencies uh, fund equipment and other types of purchases uh, in the fight against uh, terrorism. Well, you're doing and a terrific job. We're going to have you back next week to tell us even more. Thank you so much, Tim. Well, thank you, Mari. I appreciate the time. Thank you. Right. We'll have you back.